This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. I first became aware of Grace Jones late one night during the mid-80s when I happened upon her video for My Jamaican Guy on Friday Night Videos. For younger listeners, Friday Night Videos aired on NBC and was an attempt by the network to compete directly with MTV. In its early years, MTV was still a phenomenon that only a few Americans could actually get in their homes. And there were many areas of the U.S. that still didn't have cable television, and not all cable television providers offered MTV. Friday Night Videos took advantage of that fact and proved to be the next best thing for many viewers like me. While it primarily showcased music videos by popular Top 40 acts of the day, unlike its cable rival, Friday Night Videos tended to offer more variety. Friday Night Videos also had guest hosts, and on this particular night, Lisa Bonet and Malcolm Jamal Warner then stars of The Cosby Show were picking the videos. Bonet picked My Jamaican Guy as a personal favorite. In case you've never seen the video, definitely check it out on YouTube. It features striking footage from Jones's groundbreaking a one-man show long-form music video. But it was the music, a perfect mix of dub reggae and new wave synth, that blew my young suburban mind. The song was my official introduction to Jones and her backing band, the Compass Point All-Stars, with whom she collaborated to record her iconic trilogy of albums, Warm Leatherette in 1980, Night Clubbing in 1981, and Living My Life in 1982. All the albums were recorded at the Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas for Island's record founder, Chris Blackwell. Hi, I'm Mark Wasserman. Welcome to Punky Reggae Party a special audio documentary series of the Skaboom podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network that focuses on the historical origins and impact of reggae on popular music that will explore the phenomena of punk and post-punk bands adopting the sounds of reggae. I'm excited that Skaboom is now part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is the MTV of podcasting, featuring a wide range of music shows focused on history, interviews, commentary, news, careers, industry, reviews, conversations, books, films, comedy, and more. The network of 70 shows is hosted by producers, radio DJs, musicians, fans, comedians, actors, authors, and celebrities. Convergence of punk and reggae and punk and ska in the late 70s and early 80s resulted in some significant musical experiments in which punks and post-punk bands incorporated the sound of reggae and dub in particular. 
While the punk adoption of reggae covers soon became a regular musical occurrence, reggae versions of punk and post-punk material was rare, but did happen. In fact, some of the most radical reggae reinterpretations of post-punk songs were those recorded by Jones on the Warm Leatherette album, including the title track, Warm Leatherette by The Normal, Private Life by The Pretenders, and Demolition Man by The Police, as well as Nightclubbing by Iggy Pop, and Me, I Disconnect From You by Gary Newman on the Nightclubbing LP. Jones had released three disco records by the time she showed up at Compass Point in 1979. Her music, classic disco with instrumental breaks, long intros, and four-on-the-floor beat, was danceable and meticulously produced. Songs with over-the-top string arrangements and tongue-in-cheek lyrics like I Need a Man and Send in the Clowns had become gay nightlife anthems. But Jones was disillusioned with disco and on the urging of Blackwell had traveled to Compass Point to find a new direction. Blackwell wanted Jones, born in Jamaica but raised in the U.S., to embrace Jamaican music and musicians and her backing band, which she lovingly described as the United Nations in the studio, included Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare as her rhythm section, as well as the cream of the crop of session musicians, including French keyboardist Wally Badaru, Jamaican guitarist Mickey Mao Chung, and percussionist Uzziah Sticky Thompson, as well as British guitarist Barry Reynolds. Blackwell purposely didn't share any details with the musicians about the project. According to a piece in the Red Bull Music Academy website from 2016, keeping the band uninformed meant each member contributed his own individual sound. There was a tension between each faction in the group that gave the music both its tightness and its looseness, Blackwell said. Members of the band were interviewed this past summer as part of an oral history on the 40th anniversary of the nightclubbing album for the Passion of the Weiss website. It provides a great behind-the-scenes look at the creative process. According to Badaru, when we all landed in Nassau, Barry and I were curious about Sly, Robbie, Mickey, and Sticky's ability to play disco music while they were questioning our ability to play reggae. But once we got into the studio, things just unfolded, no questions asked. Each of us just did what he was best at. No self-proclaimed leader, no self-proclaimed arranger in sight. Everyone was his own man, and there was no debate as to who should be doing what, where, and when in order to make it groove. Things just went without words, as if we had been playing together for years. I guess each of us had, independently from each other, developed the sense of listening to the other, required by any professional session, just like good actors would do and just like any good musician should do. 
According to Dunbar, Grace felt the most at home at Compass Point. She was amongst Jamaican musicians. Chris Blackwell is practically Jamaican. And being in Nassau with us, the ocean is there. She was always relaxed and ready to work when she came down. We would all go to Chris's house and have dinner. There was a real family connection during those sessions, ultimately. That family vibe infused the sessions. According to Badaru, the chemistry was revealed from day one when we had a go at the Pretender's private life, that first evening of the recording session. Chris Blackwell had put us all together in the studio with absolutely no direction or concept discussed beforehand. He just assumed that it only took to have musicians whose work he liked to make things happen. It was a huge bet, which he won, I would say, thanks to his non-dictatorial charisma. According to Reynolds, the Jamaican musicians were incredibly tight, and it proved to be a great training ground for me because we would do two takes of something at the most, and then Robbie, who was one of the leads in the band, would then say, yeah, we good with this one, let's move on. Then we'd go on to something else. I learned very quickly that what you're putting down in the beginning was really important. According to Badaru, Blackwell did the whole of the cover selection work. He would come in each morning with audio cassettes by the dozens. That said, if Sly and Robbie couldn't find the basic groove, it was a forget it situation right away. If they did, then we only had one take. And only if the take was successful, then was it considered for fine tuning and overdubs, all of which could be done much later, even the year after. Laying down the rhythm tracks went so fast we managed to have a double album worth of material in less than 10 days primary overdubs included, out of which Chris decided to have Warm Leatherette completed and released first that year in 1980, then nightclubbing the year after, once final overdubs were added to the rhythm tracks already recorded. When it was released, Warm Leatherette garnered positive reviews. According to John Doran of BBC Music, Warm Leatherette was a post-punk pop album that delved into the worlds of disco, reggae and funk, much more successfully than most of her alternative contemporaries, while still retaining a blank-eyed alienation that was more reminiscent of David Bowie or Ian Curtis. As big a fan as I am of all three Compass Point albums, it is my humble opinion that Jones's reggae reinvention of a non-album track, namely the Joy Division classic, She's Lost Control, which was the B-side to the Private Life single and was not released on the album, really is a rare musical masterpiece. First, some background. Ian Curtis, the lead singer of Joy Division, drew the lyrical inspiration for She's Lost Control from a young woman with whom he had been acquainted through his job at an occupational rehabilitation center during 1978 and 1979. The woman had epilepsy and had been desperate to find employment, but she suffered seizures whenever she came to the center, which upset Curtis. At one point, the woman stopped attending her appointments. Initially, Curtis assumed she had found a job, but he would later discover she had died of an epileptic seizure. The woman's unexpected death and Curtis's subsequent diagnosis with epilepsy and the stigma endured by individuals with the condition formed the basis for the lyrics. Have a listen to the Joy Division version, which was released in 1979 on the Unknown Pleasures album. 
Jones's idiosyncratic reggae rendition of the song was recorded just a few short weeks before Curtis tragically took his own life and acts as a reminder of the untapped potential Joy Division had. That said, Jones, who sounds like she was born to sing this song, takes a post-punk classic and makes it her own. As an interesting side note, Curtis was a huge reggae fan, which makes this oddly appropriate. Have a listen to the Jones version, which pulses and vibrates with unbridled energy. Control. 
key distinction between the two songs is the way Jones takes a masculine song about epilepsy, which defines a disease as female, and turns it into a song from a woman's point of view. I've lost control versus she's lost control. And it's quite striking, turning the meaning of the song on its head. The screeching car tires are a particularly subtle but powerful sound effect that also push the song into a whole new place. The Jones version of the song has inspired many surprisingly academic interpretations, including this one by the noted cultural theorist Mark Fisher, who wrote extensively about Joy Division and Grace Jones. Here's what he had to say. In Joy Division's version, She's Lost Control is one of Rock's most explicit encounters with Death Drive. It confronts the edge of no escape, Petit Mal as Petit Mort, where Curtis sounds already dead, fatalistically mortified, capable of neither screaming nor laughing. Jones sounds crazed, deranged, in some state that, neither agonized nor ecstatic, is some sublime bitch's brew of the two. The screams and the laughter seem to come from some other place, a dread zone from which Jones has returned, but only partially. Is it the laughter of one who has passed through death or the scream of a machine that is coming to life? Jones changes the words, repudiates Curtis's disavowal, I've lost control, she sings, repeating her impossible identification again, paradoxically asserting her subjectivity at the very moment of its erasure. I've lost control. I have become the object. There is a strange humor surrounding Jones's insane vocal theatrics on the track. Her singing is cinematic, and the song sounds like a short movie. On top of that, the music is impressively weird and twisted and packed with merciless dub effects that perfectly depict the desperation in Curtis's lyrics. Enjoyed this episode of Punky Reggae Party. My book is available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. That's D I W U L F.com, as well as on Amazon. Thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>